Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Thank you for standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the IGM Financial third quarter 2020 earning results call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to Keith Potter, Senior Vice President Finance. Please go ahead. Thank you, Ariel, and good morning and welcome to IGM Financial's 2020 third quarter earnings call. Joining me on the call today are James O'Sullivan, President and CEO of IGM Financial, Damon Murchison, President and CEO of IG Wealth Management, Barry McInerney, President and CEO of McKenzie Investments, and Luke Gould, Executive Vice President and CFO of IGM Financial. Before we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to the cautions concerning forward-looking statements on slide three of the presentation. On slide four, summarizes non-inferous financial measures used in this material. On slide five, we provide a list of documents that are available to the public on our website related to third quarter results for IGM Financial. And with that, I'll turn it over to James. Well, thank you, Keith, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, let me begin by acknowledging the trying times that we continue to navigate and sincerely thank our employees, consultants, and advisors for their ongoing efforts to stay focused on our clients while taking proper care of themselves and their families. We had an opportunity to update our board of directors yesterday on wellness broadly and they enthusiastically support ongoing initiatives to be supportive in these times. I'd also like to acknowledge Jeff Carney and thank him for his leadership over these past several years. His greatest contribution, in my opinion, is the executive management team that he assembled. I'm impressed by the mix of long tenured at IGM and new to IGM. It's a purposeful mix of industry experience and geographic experience. I'm looking forward to working with them as we execute our strategy and continue to build momentum in our businesses. Now, I'm excited to be here for several reasons. First on the list is the core purpose of this organization, helping Canadians achieve security in their financial lives. This purpose is motivating and animates all that we do. And second, it's the high quality and scale of this organization and its affiliation with PowerCorp and the quality of people throughout. As we indicated on September 14th, our overarching message is one of continuity and building on momentum. There will be no hard shifts, left or right. IGM has articulated a clear strategy over the past three years and we will continue to execute against it. IG Wealth is well positioned for success. Canadians want financial advice, 
need financial advice and will pay a fair price for financial advice. I believe that a strong client-advisor relationship grounded in a dynamic living financial plan supported by strong managed solutions is a winning formula. IG Wealth will continue to serve more Canadians, particularly in the mass affluent and high net worth segments of the marketplace. McKinsey Investments is knocking on the door of $200 billion of assets under management. It enjoys scale and strong investment performance. I'm particularly excited about its growth prospects in China, in ETFs, alternatives, and socially responsible investing. Combined with new distribution opportunities, particularly in the retirement space, it is very well positioned for growth. And IPC, with almost $30 billion of assets, will be a leader in new emerging industry models as advisor practices transition. Overall, we're excited as a team to be here. Our focus areas will be net flows, net sales, and discipline in expense growth. With these, we will grow earnings for our shareholders. Turning to slide seven, overall, I would describe this as a strong quarter with more potential upside as our businesses work towards their full stride. We achieved record AUM&A in the quarter of $196.4 billion, reflecting strong net sales and client investment returns. Investment fund net sales of $610 million are up significantly from $103 million last year, and overall total net flows were $408 million, including record high flows at McKenzie. IGM's Q3 earnings per share were $0.80, cents and adjusted earnings per share were $0.90, cents, up 17% from Q2. And I'd like to point out the second highest quarterly adjusted EPS in company history. EPS includes a non-IFRS adjustment consisting of restructuring and other charges resulting from our ongoing multi-year initiatives to modernize our technology platform, costs relating to the GLC acquisition, and personnel changes. This was partially offset by a gain on sale from personal capital. We continue to make great progress on our strategic transformation, and I will speak more to this in just a moment. It's been a very busy quarter in the new strategic investment and other segment, with the acquisition of an interest in Northleaf Capital Partners, closing of the personal capital sale, increase in fair value of our WealthSimple stake to $550 million, and the continued strong earnings growth of China AMC relative to Q3 of last year. We discussed the GLC transaction on the Q2 call, and Barry will provide highlights on Northleaf Capital Partners later in this call. Turning to slide eight on investment returns, Q3 saw solid equity market increases across most major market indices, with lower volatility continuing while fixed income markets remained flat. Overall, IGM's average client investment return of 4.2% was strong during the quarter. 
October saw mixed performance in capital markets, resulting in an average client return of negative 1.9%, all of which has more than reversed so far in November. Turning to slide nine, Q3 long-term mutual fund net sales were $5.8 billion for the total industry and $0.6 billion for the advice channel. This result is roughly in line with the 10-year average for the third quarter and is an improvement relative to 2018 and 2019. Slide 10 is a quick reminder from our October 7th press release and October 8th webcast, where we have defined our three new reportable segments. We've made these changes to help stakeholders better understand our business lines and assess components of value across wealth management, asset management, and strategic investments and other. Turning to slide 11 on our results for the third quarter, Average AUMNA of $194.9 billion increased 5.5% year-over-year. IGM's Q3 2020 adjusted earnings per share of $0.90 cents was up 17% from Q2 and 6% from last year. You can see on slide 12 that the quarter-over-quarter quarter increase in adjusted EBIT was driven by strong earnings growth across the wealth management and asset management segments. Relative to the prior year, asset management earnings increased 16.7%. China AMC's contribution to IGM's EBIT increased 36.4% year over year. And Great West LifeCo earnings also improved over this time period. Slide 13 outlines the strong improvements in net flows for Q3 and year-to-date across all segments. Consolidated net inflows of $408 million during Q3 2020 were up $1.5 billion year-over-year, a solid result. Turning to slide 14, Wealthsimple has demonstrated a strong track record of growth and shown an ability to attract capital, and they've built a strong challenger culture. AUA has nearly doubled year over year, reaching $8.3 billion as of September 30, 2020. The October equity fundraising reflects the substantial increase in Wealthsimple's valuation, now at $1.5 billion. As a result, We've marked up the fair value of our investment to $550 million. IGM remains the largest shareholder with a 36% pro forma fully diluted ownership, and the power group's collective ownership is 62%. Turning to slide 15 for an update on our very important transformation initiatives. At Investor Day in 2017, we announced a five-year plan to modernize our technology and operations. The initiatives listed on this slide are split by our two main objectives, to enhance back office efficiency and elevate the client and advisor experience. Our transformation program is on track. 
We introduced important initiatives in the second half of 2019, and we're now implementing a series of new back office initiatives, including accelerating end-to-end -end automation of some business processes, partnering with Capco, outsourcing end-user services, partnering with Soroc Technology, and outsourcing our mainframe hosting to IBM. Overall, the back office transformation remains focused on leveraging the scale and expertise of leading providers, automating business processes, and improving efficiencies. We're proud of the significant milestones we've achieved so far and look forward to building upon this solid foundation as we move forward. With that, I'll now turn it over to Damon Murchison. Thank you, uh, thank you, James, and uh, and good morning, everyone. Before I get started on the quarterly results, I'd like to share some uh, some early perspectives. Just so you have context, uh, my background in financial services lies in banking, insurance, independent, and integrated. So I have a deep knowledge of the various models in the country. I enter my role with a, a strong knowledge base of IG Wealth Management and its culture, having worked with them in different capacities over the past 18 years. First off, I strongly believe that IG Wealth has a unique value proposition for mass affluent and high net worth Canadians that gives us a strong foundation to compete. We are well positioned based on our ability to create a unique client experience that's personalized throughout the client's lifetime. At the heart of this is what we call Gamma, a commitment to deliver a dynamic living plan that connects the client's short term with their long term, a plan that's constructed by an advisor that has expertise, the ability to deliver on the plan, and a willingness to work with that client for life. All this is backed by a comprehensive suite of well-constructed managed solutions that are competitively priced and leverage some of the largest and best-known investment managers globally. A key competitive advantage for us that will allow us to win is our distribution strength. We have the benefit of scale with over 3,300 consultants across the country that are located in communities where their clients are located. We have a central focus on the client and delivering high-quality living plans through accredited financial planners who have access to expert support in industry-leading tools and training. We also have advisors who are driven by entrepreneurship with strong ties to their communities and a desire to work with their clients for life. Finally, we are transforming our operation and, and digitalizing and automating workflow to increase the productivity of our advisor network and elevate the client experience, something that smaller competitors may not be able to do. Our key opportunity now is to leverage the investments to create, a needed, to create needed capacity within our advisor network. We have gone through a period of significant transformational change, and although we still have initiatives in flight, we have the necessary platforms today and tools and technology to free up capacity within our network and leverage those new capabilities to increase our share of wallet and acquire new clients in our key target segments. Finally, we are well positioned for the future of advice. The advice channel is dominant in Canada. We don't expect this to change in a meaningful way. IG Wealth is, has market share of anywhere between 2 to 5% in, in our key target segments, depending on what segment you're talking about. So there's lots of room to increase our share. It only takes a small amount of share gains to, to achieve significant growth. We feel that Gamma, which is our focused dynamic customized financial advice, will be one of the models that shows significant growth in the years to come. Which, is, which meshes well with our vision to be the financial planning company of choice and our goal to increase our market share of discretionary wealth assets. So now let's turn to slide 17 and go through IG Wealth Management's Q3 2020 highlights. 
AUA at the end of September was $97.5 billion, up 3.9% during the quarter. IT's year-to-date net flows reached $310 million at the end of September, and we saw uh, inflows improve, improve to negative $9 million in the quarter, up from negative $233 million last year. The most interesting part of our Q3 results on a month, is our month-to-month trend in gross inflows. While COVID caused a little bit of a slowdown in new household acquisition between March and July this year, we saw a significant shift in momentum starting in August, continued in September, and also continued in, uh, in October. Momentum in, uh, in the fourth quarter is off to a great start with October growth inflows uh, are best in our history. We'll also speak to the growth of, uh, of our consultant network in, uh, in a moment. Turning to slide 18, Client flows in AUA, when you take a look at the metrics, you could remember that includes client in-kind in transfers into our platform from competing firms. We also we earn advisory fees on most of these assets. The net activity of these in-kind transfers is primarily reflected in our third-party funds and securities row of the net flows table located in the middle of the slide. Relative to last year, net flows for the quarter improved by $224 million and an annual AUA redemption rate for the third quarter down noticeably from 2019, reflecting strong client and asset retention. Turning to slide 19, while gross sales were flat relative to last year for the quarter overall, the chart on the right demonstrates the improvement in gross sales momentum that I talked about that took place partly, partway through the third quarter. As we look at October, the gross sales momentum accelerated was a key driver of $111 million in positive net inflows during the month, which was our second best October in the past decade. At this pace, we are on track to reach an all-time record high in gross sales and a respectable net flows for the year despite the pandemic. Moving to slide 20 and our consultant network. Our consultant network grew during the third quarter, driven by the strongest recruiting we've experienced since Q4 2017. Practices, which reflect advisors with four years experience, four years or more experience increased to 1856 in the quarter, reflecting strong recruitment of experienced advisors and the successful graduation of, uh, of advisors less than four years to the four years plus rank. In addition, we also have grown our new recruits and associates during the period. We're optimistic for the continued success going forward for a number of reasons. Firstly, we continue to have a strong pipeline of high quality recruits as the investments we've made over the past two years have built confidence in our team and it's being noticed by industry professionals. Secondly, we also find that, that COVID has created uncertainty with segments in, within our industry peers, and we're able to attract advisors that have seen the evolution of our business. The decisions we've made to stand behind and support our advisors, their clients, and our communities throughout this difficult period has further differentiated our organization as a great place for like-minded financial planners to, to, to come to IG to help build their business and service their clients. From a productivity standpoint, our teams continue to have success expanding their business and attracting client relationships. With that, I'll turn it over to Barry McInerney. Thank you very much, Damon, and good morning, and everyone. I'll begin my comments on Q3 2020 results on page 22. McKenzie's total AUM of $147.3 billion was up 4.5% for the quarter. Q3 2020 saw record high investment fund net sales of $946 million with positive contributions from both mutual funds and ETFs. And we've now achieved 16 consecutive quarters of positive retail mutual fund net sales and 18 quarters for retail ETF net sales. 
I fully expect this momentum to continue into the future with McKinsey's strong relative investment performance and our top two ranking in the Enveronics Advisor Perception Studies for both mutual funds and ETFs. And finally, we discussed the acquisition of GLC Asset Management on our last call. And today, as James mentioned, I'll share details of our exciting strategic partnership with North Beef Capital Partners, including a 56% economic interest in the company. Slide 23 highlights McKenzie's operating results. Total mutual fund gross sales of $2.9 billion saw year-over-year increases from both retail and institutional. Strong retail investment fund net sales of $840 million were up $491 million relative to Q3 of last year, and McKenzie's total investment fund net sales rate has risen to 2.9%. McKenzie has 61% of AUM rated four or five stars by Morningstar, which is the highest in over a decade. The charts on the left side of slide 24 highlight the strength of McKinsey's gross and net flows for Q3 year-to-date and the month of October relative to past years. Last month, October, was a record-breaking month with investment fund net flows of $238 million, the best October result on record for McKinsey. And on the right, you can see the strong net flows momentum on a trailing 12-month basis. The latest Enveronics advised perception studies have been published and McKenzie's results are summarized on slide 25. McKenzie improved to second in the overall mutual fund perception ranking from third last year. Our sales penetration was strong in both the MFDA and IROC channels, and the overall quality of our sales organization improved to first from second. And on the ETF side, our overall perception rank increased to second from fifth last year, which we are very proud of. While we are encouraged by the success we have had over the past 16 quarters of positive retail net sales, we are equally encouraged about our future opportunities. Slide 26 highlights five areas of emphasis for future growth, which we believe McKenzie has strengths to capitalize on. We have dedicated leadership and teams to execute on each of these themes with most recent developments in SRI, alternatives, and retirement. Some of our most successful fund flows are coming from these areas, such as McKenzie's Global Environmental Equity Fund, McKenzie's Retirement Monthly Income and Strategic Income Offerings, and McKenzie All China Equity Fund. We are in the early days of these emerging opportunities and look forward to discussing them more in the future. And finally, slide 27 provides an overview of the Northleaf Capital Partners Partnership and Equity Interests we announced on September 17th. For those not familiar with Northleaf, they are an independent mid-market private equity, private credit, and infrastructure investment firm with global capabilities. This is a strategic transaction that provides benefits for McKenzie, IGM's Wealth Managers, Great West Life Co., Northleaf, and ultimately all of our clients. We are very excited about the immediate and long-term potential of the transaction and have already started to execute on a variety of these initiatives. For example, on McKenzie, we have a dedicated team focused on alternative investments. We intend to continue to build out our liquid alternative product suite in the near term, and at the same time, we expect to introduce our first private market alternative products, starting with Northleaf Private Credit in the coming months. At IG Wealth, commitments to Northleaf's private credit strategies have already been made within their iProfile high net worth managed asset solutions. This offering will complement IG's longstanding history of offering real estate and mortgage credit products to their clients. Also, as discussed in the press release, our sister company, Great West Life Co., 
has made commitments to invest in Northleaf Solutions for its balance sheet and will pursue future opportunities to strengthen access to private market solutions across its businesses globally. We believe that now is the time to democratize private market alternative investment for retail Canadians and see this as one of our key growth catalysts. I'll now turn over to Luke. Great. Thanks, Barry. Good morning, everybody. So, wow, it's been a uh, very busy quarter for us indeed. So on page 28, I'll first start by just uh, highlighting uh, a few items. Uh, number one is a reminder of the disclosure enhancements that James uh, James reminded us of earlier. And uh, I, I would point out there's a reconciliation to the previous disclosures with, within our MDNA, and we will make uh, make sure that we're giving you what you need to, to reconcile uh, to, to past disclosures this quarter and, uh, and in coming quarters. Uh, second, I'd highlight we have, uh, as, as mentioned by James and Barry, a number of corporate investments announced or closed in the quarter. Uh, this includes the acquisition of GLC, which was announced and is on track to close at the end of the year, and Northleaf, which we announced in September and, uh, and closed last week. We also had the close of the sale of personal capital, which brought us a pre-tax gain of $37 million on an accounting basis and $44 million on an economic basis, and that was included within our Q3 results. Uh, just a bit of guidance on the acquisitions that have closed or are closing uh, in the coming uh, weeks. Um, for, first, we will have two months of Northleaf results in the fourth quarter, and we do expect in the first year uh, with Northleaf, we'll have about EBITDA of, uh, of $12 million per year. Um, I'd also highlight with GLC, we'll start to incorporating uh, the incremental earnings from that in Q1, and we will expect to have incremental EBITDA of about $20 million per year uh, in the first year, uh, from the acquisition of GLC, and this will be partially offset uh, from $5 million of lower fees from the Silver Quadrants Group of Funds to, uh, to Canada Life. Lastly, as James mentioned, as a result of a number of technology transformation initiatives launched during the quarter, as well as the acquisition of GLC and other investment management changes, we do have a pre-tax restructure amount of around $75 million pre-tax in our results. Uh, I'd note the largest part of this amount relates to restructuring and downsizing and transition costs from outsourcing our technology infrastructure and automating processes. I, I'd highlight this involves transitioning off of our current platform as well as downsizing the environment. As James mentioned, this provides ongoing cost savings of $20 million per year while also allowing us to leverage the scale and expertise of leading providers. The other key element of the, uh, this expense amount relates to restructuring costs associated with the GLC acquisition and the transfer of the Quadrus Group of Funds to Canada Life as well as other investment management changes at McKinsey. While the transaction hasn't closed yet, the restructuring costs are recorded now as we are actively executing and delivering the plan with our sister company at this time. We, we've notified uh, all, the, all the people who are coming on, and, uh, and we, are, uh, we are actually executing on, on, on transferring the fund contracts. And so it's, uh, it's unusual to re record a charge before close, um, but given that this is our sister company and given the, uh, the notification we've given to all parties, th this is the right moment to, uh, to record it. Moving to page 29, you can see our consolidated assets under management and advisement. We closed the quarter with $196 billion, an increase of 4.3%, and average assets were up 7% from Q2, which led to very strong sequential growth in earnings. I'd also note that if you look at the chart on the left, you can see the decline in assets at the end of October, and, and I would highlight that this is obviously more than fully recovered so far in November where we're sitting and uh, we're at about $200 billion today. So it's looking like a very good Q4 so far. On page 30, I've highlighted on the left that our consolidated EBIT was $300.4 in the quarter. This was up 16% from Q2. 
As highlighted by James, this was our second highest adjusted EPS in the company's history. Here you can see in the chart on the left, the second stack from the top, we had our share of associates' earnings quite strong once again at $45.7 million and near the same level as Q2. At the bottom on that same chart, you'll see operations and support expenses were down from Q2 and in line with Q3 2019. On the right, you can see the operating leverage that this has resulted in in the business. Our net revenue rate was relatively stable at 89 basis points, while our operations and support expenses declined from 41 basis points to 37 basis points. As a result, our EBIT margin improved nicely from 46 basis points to 52 basis points. On page 31, you can see our consolidated income statement. And I just have two remarks in this slide. First, uh, as, as indicated earlier at the bottom, you can see the growth relative to uh, last quarter and relative to last year. Second, a few comments in the expense line. Uh, first, you can see our operations and support expenses were $181.9 million, down from Q2 and in line with last year. In spite of this, what we used to call our non-commissioned expenses are a little bit higher than where we guided. I'd remind, like, uh, like last quarter, part of this is the growth that we, uh, we experienced in the business relative to where we set our guidance, which has resulted in, uh, in higher costs like subadvisory fees, as well as, uh, as, as, in, as higher, uh, higher compensation expense for, uh, for salespeople, as McKinsey had another uh, consecutive quarter of a billion dollars in net sales, driven uh, primarily by retail. We also have had some unexpected COVID-related expenses, as well as some delays in transformation benefits from the initiatives that we brought to light this quarter. For Q4, I guide you that you should expect our expenses to be at or very slightly higher than Q3's level. Full year, what this implies is that we'll be relatively close to 2019's level of $1.04 billion. And I remind you that's $30 million below our original guidance for the full year of 2019. And we do remain very focused on, uh, on prudent cost management. We won't be giving definitive guidance for 2021 at this time, as we're still finalizing our plans, but I would uh, reinforce our guidance that we wouldn't expect operations and support expenses to increase by more than 3% next year, year over year, and that excludes, um, obviously, uh, GLC coming on, which will, uh, will give us incremental expenses. Uh, we'll also give guidance on how we expect advisory and business development expenses to behave, and we would also expect that those expenses not driven by AUM and sales levels uh, would not grow by more than 3%. Moving to page 32, you can see our fee rates and expense rates for those lines driven by AUM or AUA on the right for IG Wealth. I'd remind that advisory fees, which you can see at 105.9 basis points, are charged as a percent of assets under advisement, and they vary based upon the composition of our clientele. Product and program fees of 86.2 basis points are charged on assets under management, and they don't vary based on who the client is, they vary based upon the underlying composition of products and asset classes. Moving to page 33, this is a slide that, that you're familiar with and, uh, and we did review on October 8th when we announced the new disclosures. I just wanted to reinforce, as Damon highlighted, IG's value proposition of better gamma, better beta, and better alpha. Importantly, gamma is the value of working with a financial advisor, and we charge advisory fees on assets under advisement for these services. As you can see here, GAM is not just 60% of the client outcome, it's also 60% of the fees we charge. I want to use this moment to remind that as a wealth manager, we will be emphasizing AUA and net client contributions to their accounts, meaning net flows, as our key uh, performance indicators, as opposed to assets under management and the net sales to our AUM. I, I would remind, as, as Damon highlighted, 
as we build new client relationships, assets transfer to our firm in kind and would only be moved to our own solutions if, as, and when suitable for our clients. As a result, in some periods, there will tend to be a lag between net contributions to our AUA versus net sales to our AUM. Go to page 34, you can see IG's income statement. You can see in point one, other financial planning revenues were up noticeably from Q2. This is due to depressed mortgage income in Q2 as a result of the nature of interest rate changes we had uh, in, in early April. Uh, Q3, I highlight, is a return to normal uh, earnings for the mortgage business. You can also see that operations and support expenses were up a little bit in Q3. This is as a result of some unanticipated COVID-related expenses, as well as a delay in some of the technology benefits uh, from the initiatives that we brought to life. And that's meaning we, we expected those initiatives to be launched earlier than they were. You can also see that this was offset by reduced other business development costs in the quarter, which are down $4 million from last quarter. On page 35, you can see the composition of McKenzie's AUM on the left. And you can further see within that chart, we've, uh, we've further split the third-party AUM of 73.7 billion into its component pieces to help you understand the change in fee rates over time as the mix evolves between retail and institutional. The net fee rate you'll see on the right was 71 basis points during the quarter on third-party assets. And I just highlight the basis point did decline in the period. Part of the change was higher sales commission expense, which is included in that net revenue uh, item, and that relates to higher sales levels. Uh, I'd also highlight we onboarded a lot of uh, a lot of institutional business late in the uh, in the second quarter, and that did uh, that did I wouldn't say annualize it quarter quarterized uh, during the period as we had a full three months of, uh, of that business in the period. Uh, turn to page 36. We're, we're very pleased to see the significant growth in McKinsey's earnings. That's 17% from last year and 29% from last quarter as a result of the growth in the business as well as operating leverage. When you adjust to remove the new sub-advisory fees from IG that we're now including in McKinsey's results, th this is McKinsey's highest quarter quarterly earnings in over five years. I just make one comment on the operations and support costs which are down from last quarter and down from last year, and we're $69.7 million. Uh, this, uh, this good cost result is a result of the expense management efforts we announced after our first quarter. I, I would also note there were some extraordinary severance, severance amounts in the prior period, um, but we do expect this is, this is a normal run for McKinsey, and, uh, and we will give guidance uh, uh, over time as we, uh, as we evolve our business and build our business. On page 37, you can see the strategic investments in another segment. We've highlighted in the, in the bullet here, and we highlighted on our call on October 8th, the segment has a fair value of over $2.9 billion at September 30th. I, I first call out the first circle item, which is Well Simple. As reviewed by James, and as we highlighted a few weeks ago, Well Simple did complete a funding round that valued the firm at $1.5 billion post money. We've adjusted the fair value of our stake in Well Simple by $300 million as, as a result to reflect this valuation. And we are now carrying Well Simple and uh, Portage at $598 million. I'd remind that we equity account for our investment in China asset management, and, and we do intend to do a deep dive on China every two quarters. I'll, uh, I'll remind that our share of their earnings is up from $7.6 million last year to $10.5 million this year, which is an increase of 36%, um, which is a, a little bit higher increase than, uh, than, than we had year over year last quarter. The book value you can see is $713 million, and, and I would remind the firm's earnings have risen noticeably since our investment in 2017, and we have no reason to believe that multiples have contracted. So we believe the book value is, is actually a very conservative measure of the fair value of this investment. 
I'd also note in the second column from the right, we have $580 million in unallocated capital. $193 million was earmarked for the acquisition of Northleaf, and $145 million is earmarked for the acquisition of GLC, leaving $242 million of excess capital. That concludes my, my comments. I'll turn it over for question zero. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then 1 on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then 2. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question comes from Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, my question was for James and Damon. Um, just with your new roles, um, are there things that you plan to do differently versus the strategic direction that was already in place um, when you assumed your positions? Sure, I'll start, Jeff. It's James, and, uh, and good morning. Um, no, the short answer is no. Uh, our, my overall message, and I believe Damon's overall message, is really one of uh, continuity and uh, maintaining momentum. Uh, you know, I've followed this company, Jeff, from a distance for several years. I've been very impressed with this company for a long time, including, you know, in particular their 2017 Investor Day, um, where they laid out uh, this strategy. So uh, Damon and I are committed to executing the strategy. And uh, as I said in my remarks, uh, you know, there will be three external markers that we will be quite focused on. They're not new, uh, but they're, they're worth pointing out. We're going to be very focused on net flows, net sales, and discipline and expenses. And that, we believe, will lead to a, a clear path for earnings growth, and, and, and we're committed to achieving that. Yeah, so thanks, thanks in terms of, uh, of IG Wealth, you know, it's exactly what uh, what James talked about. Jeff Jeff Carney and the leadership team have done a great job in putting together uh, a winning strategy, the right strategy, and uh, and setting a course for for transformation. And we are now in execution mode. We want to build off of the investments that that were made, and we're we're looking very very clearly at at three verticals: share of wallet, new client acquisition, and and recruitment. And that's where we're focused. We believe that we are in a position now to, to really capitalize on our strategy and all the investment that's made in the firm and, and to drive results. Okay, thank you for that. And just my other question was on, was on the IG Wealth side. Um, when I look at the gross sales performance, it suggests that you've been able to successfully pivot to target more affluent investors, but the net flows have been, um, you know, I guess hurt due to the higher redemptions than what would have been seen prior to that sort of strategic change. And I'm just wondering if, if it's due to perhaps higher than what was anticipated redemptions from uh, moving mass market clients to the National Service Center and just trying to get a sense of when you think the gross redemptions dissipate such that you can consistently generate positive net sales on a monthly basis. Yeah, and, and, and obviously, I mean, you, you answered part of your own question there with just the, the, the tremendous amount of change that we've had at the, at the organization. Uh, but we believe in ex that executing the strategy is going to result in accelerated growth in both AUA and AUM. Uh, there's just, there's just a, a lag, as, uh, as you would know, and, and Luke talked a little bit about that. Our, 
going up market is um, is big for us in a sense that a few things happen. Number one, you're bringing on third-party assets. You're not bringing on AUM. You're bringing on AUA. And then recruitment, you're bringing on AUA as well. So one, you're bringing it on at the portfolio level. The other, you're bringing it at the book level. And as you bring that on and you go up market, you're dealing with less registered assets and more non-registered assets. Non-registered assets, as we know, have, have taxable impl implications. You just can't move money right away. We always want to make sure that we're doing what's in the best interest of the client. That's, that's, that's what we're focused on. Uh, but So AUA is a leading indicator to, to, to AUM. Uh, we really believe that we have a, a great suite of well-constructed managed solutions. And over time, uh, AUA will, will, will feed AUM. And actually, uh, Damon, I'll add to that. Uh, j just uh, one comment, uh, Jeff. On page 19, you can see the, uh, the, the, net, the net flows over time, and you can see the positive $111 million in October. And as, as Dan mentioned, that's, that's continuing uh, into November. But, but I would comment, when you compare AUA to AUM, I know to the extent that money leaves our, uh, our AUM and, and goes to high-interest savings accounts, for example, um, or, or other other solutions within our suite, that, that's going to affect our AUM number, but not our, our AUM number. So we're, we're going to try and give disclosure to understand how product flows are happening within our client relationships. Um, but there is going to be a divergence at times between the net flows being contributed to client accounts, which you can see here on page 19, versus the net sales into our, our own investment solutions. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Our next question comes from Gary Ho of Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks, and uh, and good morning, uh, James. Uh, maybe we want to ask kind of Jeff's question another way. Maybe just high level. Where have you been spending most of your time since joining the firm? Is it M and A, strategic investments? Is it uh, IG Wealth, McKenzie, or the the transformation program? And you mentioned there's no hard shifts, but uh, any tweaks to to the strategy that you would make, or anything you would like to accelerate. Yeah, thanks, Gary, and good morning. Um, so it's been about seven weeks, and, and I, I would say I have uh, spent those seven weeks, um, frankly, uh, listening uh, and learning uh, right across the organization. Uh, not unlike others uh, on this call, I'm sure, it's, it's, it's 10 hours a day of Teams meetings, and, and I am uh, digesting a business that has been, uh, I think, well-built uh, and that is headed uh, in a very clear and right direction. Um, but I do think you're, over time there will, be, there will be differences perhaps in emphasis, but I very much meant what I, what I said. You should not expect any kind of hard shifts kind of left or right here. Um, this business, and I think this quarter is a very good example of it. I mean, this really was a strong quarter. And, you know, as, as we're saying internally as a management team, you know, it was a strong quarter, but there's still lots of upside. These businesses have not hit their full stride yet. And yet it was a, you know, it was a strong quarter for clients. It was a strong quarter for shareholders. And I hope what you're seeing is, is, is real evidence of momentum now um, uh, right across the businesses. So um, disrupting that would be foolish. That, so that is not going to happen. Uh, the strategy uh, will be executed. It will be executed well. And as I said in my remarks, uh, keep an eye on net flows, net sales, uh, and expense growth. Those are markers that we as a team uh, are very focused on. And if we, if we watch them and manage them well, 
we will be delivering to you, our shareholders, earnings growth. Okay, perfect. Thanks, uh, thanks for that. Uh, next question, maybe for for Luke. Just a few question on the restructuring charge. You know, there's a piece related to the GLC acquisition. Uh, can you clarify if that would change the 20 million EBIT you expect from the GLC? Um, what they would contribute. And then second, you know, just overall, um, how should we expect the related savings related to, to that charge and or amounts that's reinvested for, for other initiatives? I assume, you know, that you, you're baking some of that into your non-commission uh, non expense growth. And, and also, you know, going through the numbers again, if you can, uh, the $1.04 uh, billion under the old disclosure, um, I think you said there's no more than 3% next year. No, I think what would be helpful is, you know, if you can give some guidance how that might look under the new disclosure line items. Yeah, th thanks for that. Great question. So I'll, I'll take it in, in order of, of how they're asked. So, so first on, on the uh, on the charge, yeah, large the largest piece of that is, is technology, uh, but your question was on, on GLC. So so on the GLC, that's that's restructuring costs uh, related to, uh, to, to A, um, acquiring the team and, and changes to the team, um, uh, B, um, transferring the uh, quadruple group of funds over to uh, over to Candle Life, and and I'd say on on this restructuring event, it doesn't change our uh, our, our guidance of the uh, of the of the net revenues coming on to us from the acquisition. Um, on, on technology, um, right now the the charge relates to us really uh, leaving an, an in-house platform that we that we share with our, our sister company, and so the theme the theme you could think of is uh, we, we we used to leverage the skill of the power group. On technology, and now we'll be moving to leverage the scale of the of the leaders um, in technology, the Googles, the IBMs, and uh, and, and many others, and uh, and so it's really uh, we're quite fortunate and blessed that that we've got a business that allows us to really partner with, with best of breed providers, and so that's what the largest piece of this this charge is is actually getting off of our current platform and the restructuring and downsizing that that comes with with this pivot uh, to to outsourcing. Um, on the expense guidance, that that three percent constraint, we, we again, as mentioned, we're finalizing our plans uh, over the coming weeks. We we will give more definitive guidance um, uh, in our February call on where we're going to be uh, be in 2021. That that three percent constraint, um, whether it's on the previous definition of non-commission expenses, or, or whether it's on uh, the, the new reporting of operations and support costs, and the uh, I'll call it the discretionary. Um, element or the the piece of business development cost that that isn't driven directly by AUM and sales, both of those you should look to to that three percent number as well. That 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 we're viewing as a ceiling, and uh, and obviously subadvisory fees are going to are going to travel with assets, and and we're always looking to manage them uh, to the best of our ability. And I know when we bring further guidance in, it, it will be inclusive of the benefits from our transformation program. Okay, and then and then the three percent. Uh, I should think about that, including the GLC acquisition bringing on, right? Um, no, we, well, we, we're bringing on a, a bunch of people. The uh, the, the numbers that uh, that, that I, I quote in terms of the incremental earnings, that, that's incremental earnings after the expenses they'll be brought on. So, so we will be um, delineating uh, what what are the incremental expenses from that acquisition when we bring it. So that three percent growth number would exclude. Uh, the incremental expenses coming on with that acquisition. And so we tried to give guidance on this is the net earnings that will be contributed from the GLC acquisition. And that, that net pre-tax number is, is about $20 million in, in year one. Got it. Okay. 
And then uh, just last question, if I can, for Damon, the increase in the IG consulting accounts, that was notable in the quarter. How should we think about this? Uh, is this split? How should we think about looking out? Is there is it going to be a gradual increase? And can you elaborate on the quality of consultants you bring on? You know, are these experienced advisors or people that's kind of new to the industry? Yeah, I think you know what what you want to do is you want to look at this as is this is something that we are clearly focused on, and um, we believe that we're going to continue to to grow our ranks uh, by bringing on quality advisors, both new that have a natural market and want to be associates for our existing teams and experienced advisors. So a nice mix of, of both the experienced advisors, we want quality, we want those that want to be in a financial planning uh, culture that is IG wealth management. We believe that um, the, the growth that we'll see here is, is will be sustainable. Uh, we've made a lot of investments into our platform, into our tools, into our, our product line, and you know, there's a lot of advisors out there right now that um, that realize that um, that things are changing in the industry, and they're getting to know the the new uh, IG Wealth Management, and the story is is compelling. We have a very strong pipeline, and we look forward to to continuing to grow our ranks, but but do so at a measured pace. That is, that making sure that we bring on the right advisors. Okay, uh, that's helpful, uh, and that's it for me. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tom McKinnon of BMO Capital Markets. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Um, just a question with re with respect to IG Wealth and in terms of uh, um, sort of a go up market strategy. How has uh, how has COVID impacted that? Uh, like as, as you try to go more up market uh, in this environment, do you need to have? Uh, can you do this in a? Uh, how successful is has this been in a working from home environment? And uh, um, or does it need to have kind of more face to face in order to uh, um, sort of steal more of these uh, um, high net worth clients, if you will? Uh, it seems to have worked. Um, you seem to be able to recruit despite that. But are you able to, uh, um, you know, recruit new prospective high net worth clients uh, in, in trying to go up up market in this current environment? Or do we need to or do we expect more of an acceleration of that uh, once we get through COVID? Yeah, well, it, it's it's as you would think, it's it's a process. And when COVID first hit, you know, we were all in the adjustment phase. Everyone on on this line, as well as our our consultants and all of our clients and potential clients, just making sure we're home, making sure everyone's safe in that type of environment. It, it's very tough to to bring on new clients. But now that we're in the post adjustment uh, phase of COVID, and what what that means is for our consultant network, for our advisors, uh, they have the tools. Uh, they have everything that they need to be able to conduct digitally. And then for the Canadian, for or the average Canadian, the average Canadian household is, is, is digitalized now. So the mass affluent, the high network clients are used to, you know, doing business at home in some way, shape, or form and talking to their friends, talking to their advisors, talking to their, their peers uh, through, through digital means. So now that we're in the post uh, post phase, uh, we find it's much easier to conduct business. Obviously, it's a process. So you're dealing first with your existing clients and share of wallet, uh, because we have uh, you know a lot of a lot of a lot of Canadians diversify their advisors and have more than one advisor. So your first natural market is is, is share of wallet, and then you go to new client acquisition. It does get tougher um, as you get to new client acquisition, but as I said. 
as the, the further along we get into this COVID world, the easier it is for Canadians to digest building a relationship with someone digitally versus face-to-face. Okay, thanks. Our next question comes from Graham Riding of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, you know, on that same theme, you know, when we think about the 20 million of savings that you're guiding towards from recent transformational initiatives, is there anything um, either baked in there or incremental perhaps as we come through this COVID period where you see an opportunity to structurally change your expense base based on on uh, how you see the business operating, you know, post-COVID in a more digital manner? I'd say we've we've seen part of that uh, right right now, Graham. Just in the, uh, the the way we've we've given this due guidance for the for the full year of 2020, and, and as as Damon highlighted, and and as we highlight on prior, prior calls, we we we're, we're so proud uh, of and proud and fortunate um, in, in the way we are able to conduct business remotely across the board uh, with our financial planners, uh, with with our uh, our employees, with the whole team, and, and and it is a result of a lot of the investment we've made over the past years to be able to do things remote and digital. Um, I, as we look forward, um, we, we haven't made any, any calls on things like facilities at this point. Um, we, we obviously, uh, it's very early in the pandemic, but I, I would say um, the, the way that we work and the way that we engage with our clients is, is changing and evolving and, and we'll embrace every opportunity to, to do things effectively. But, but the one thing that we're going to care about the most is the client experience and making sure that we're doing everything to make sure we're serving clients, you know, how they expect to be served and in the right way to, to really grow our business. Okay, <clears throat> are your expenses? Um, I'm thinking more at McKenzie or the asset management side, but perhaps overall, are expenses lower right now because you're doing less entertainment, less marketing, less conferences, things like that? You know, is that is that what we're seeing in the numbers at all? Well, inter- interesting, right? McKenzie in particular, right? travels down a little bit. Um, obviously, that that is part of the uh, the 50 million now, 30 million dollars that we that we took out of our expense guidance this year. Um, also, what you're seeing in, in McKinsey's results is one of the transformation programs we brought to life uh, last year, which was our, uh, our, our outsourcing of fund services to CIBC Mellon. So as we telegraphed last year, that, that gave us you know, you know, very, very sizable benefits, um, and it did in a way that didn't require much restructuring. So, so we've got, uh, you know, I, I'd characterize McKinsey's current expenses as, as more or less steady state. Um, we, we will obviously be investing in growth over time. Um, but, but right now, there's uh, there's nothing really unusual there, and, and we are very uh, very fortunate to have the uh, the benefits from uh, from the CIBC Mellon outsourcing last year. Understood. And then just to be clear, the the 20 million in savings that you're targeting from the recent uh, uh, transformational changes is that is that baked into your um, guidance of expense growth being no more than three percent next year? It, it it will be, Graham. And when we come back uh, in February. And give more definitive in, in 2021. It will also be inclusive of those expe- those uh, th- those savings. Okay, understood. Uh, Damon, if I could jump to you with one last question, just at IG, you know, do you track historically when you have assets that transition into AUA, either new assets or existing assets? You know, the the sort of penetration of that transitioning back into AUM. Do you have? Is that something you monitor? You can speak to at all. That's something that uh, that we are monitoring. Uh, monitoring. The key here is that it's still early days. Um, you know, our ability to 
focus on bringing on experienced uh, advisors just started a little over a year ago. And, um, and we've, you know, we were predominantly focused on the mass market for a very, very long time and really just focusing on selling proprietary products. So, you know, this change in, in strategy means that obviously we will, we'll, we will grow our AUA at accelerated rates. So we will track that, uh, but it's still early days. So the data is, I would say to you, is it's not, it's not where it needs to be in terms of uh, the length of time that we have it. So we will be tracking. That's it for me. Thank you. Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then one. Our next question comes from Scott Chen of Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Um, uh, just on slide 26, Barry, I uh, really appreciate the, uh, you know, the five areas of products. And, and we kind of talked extensively about four of them, but uh, I'm just curious about the SRIA, SRI um, you know, kind of theme at McKenzie, and maybe a bit of a background there. And, and I know you cited one billion, but is this an opportunity in both the retail and institutional channel right now? Is obviously uh, SRI is in uh, is in pretty big demand right now. Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, I'm glad you asked it because uh, again, we we put in place the other four, the alt CTFs, retirements, and and China, as you're well aware of. The SRI, uh, we're working hard on this because it is a significant growth opportunity, as, as you pointed out, both retail institutional. It's been, it's been in the institutional world for many years, if not decades, uh, prominently in Europe and, and in some respects the large pension plans in Canada. And we all expect it to come to the retail segments uh, in North America, including Canada. Um, and it took a little, little time to come here, and now, and now it's here. And, uh, and by the way, uh, the demand for SRI products in the retail segment is not necessarily just the millennials. Uh, there is a strong demand for millennials, but it's all demographics. And we've surveyed this and we monitor it. We've been studying this for a couple of years now. So we want to be thoughtful in terms of us uh, starting to launch some SRI products. We have last couple of years. Um, they're doing very well. As, as we mentioned, we're already over a billion dollars in AUM. And these are mutual funds, active, uh, you know, strong fees. Um, the Global, Envi Global Environmental Equity Fund, for instance, which we is subdivised by Greenship, which is a terrific uh, uh, SRI specialist firm based in Toronto, uh, that is now garnering one or two million dollars a day in inflows because a the performance is exceedingly good, but also everyone is embracing the fact that not only this is a way for Canadians to uh, match up their personal beliefs with their investment dollars. It's also a very strong investment thesis standalone because uh, this, for instance, one example, this particular fund invests in global listed companies that are focused on the new energy, right? Wind, water, solar. And we all know that with uh, a lot of countries and over the next 30, 40 years transitioning uh, off of fossil fuels into these sources of energy, that's going to grow very fast. So we're, we're working very hard on this. You'll see more launches uh, come, come uh, shortly in this area. Um, we want to provide advisors and Canadians a choice so that they can, again, uh, understand. We call it, by the way, sustainable, responsible impact investing uh, as opposed to uh, social responsible investing. A lot of names out there. We're helping with education as well, which we always do. So that's the business of SRI, which you'll see a lot more from us going forward. We're already top five SRI manager actually in Canada. In fact, we're well regarded uh, in this space in Canada already because I think it's because we've got you know, strong corporate culture that people realize we're community focused and, and very corporately responsible uh, at being part of IGM and being part of power. But we'll also, uh, as you know, we're, we're signatories of the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investing, and so we have integrated 
into all of our um, uh, asset management across our boutiques ESG factors to ensure that we can comply with that, uh, sign that uh, signatory responsibility. So it's really two phases that we're working on. Uh, I'm glad you asked it. You'll hear more from us going forward. It's a very fast-growing area. Uh, this is growing 30 40% a year now, last two, three years, this, this um, segment in Canada, and more to come. Thank you. And just a follow-up, Barry, most of your assets on that SRI platform proprietary uh, right now, and where's the growth coming from? Is it going to be both proprietary and on the supervisory side? It'll, it, thank you. It's going to be both. Now, we, we started out by hiring sub-advisors. We launched also, by the way, a, a global women leadership uh, mutual fund and ETF. We wanted to hire sub-advisors from the onset because we, we thought from a – we wanted to be authentic, authentic of course – and so we, we want to ensure we hired the SRI specialist to begin with to subadvise McKenzie Mutual Funds and ETF. So that's what we did from the onset. Uh, then, of course, you, you know that we, McKenzie Manufacturers for Wellsimple, their two SRI ETFs that they, um, they launched a few months ago, which, is, which, which are already up to a half a billion dollars in AUM, by the way. Uh, what you'll see from us going forward, though, uh, we, we're, we're never shy about using subadvisors that we feel is a good fit for, for advisors and investors' needs as to uh, – us doing that, but you'll see more from us launching um, uh, SRI products with us, McKenzie Manufacturing, because we feel good now where we are from ESG integration perspective. We feel good about going outside and using our uh, and, and distributing these new products that are coming in the next 12, 18 months, uh, manufactured by us. So therefore, we can capture the full economics. And, and just and, and oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to, going to add to Barry's point. Obviously, those uh, subadvisors are exclusive to us in Canadian retail. So I, I just just trying to use the word proprietary. Those are exclusive uh, subadvisors. Okay. Thank you. That's a good point. And just lastly, James, uh, uh, you know, coming from the bank culture for and your experience there, your your long experience there, uh, what have you found so far coming, uh, you know, into an independent company? And how is your and how do you think your bank experience can can kind of translate into, uh, you know, kind of strategy you're thinking on uh, you know, within IGM? Well, it's, um, I mean, this is an industry that I know well from, from, from my bank days, uh, Scott, and over 29 years at, uh, at Scotiabank, I can tell you that the, that the wealth management and the asset management businesses were, were in some respects my favorite businesses because, um, close to markets, but more importantly, um, I really love the people uh, that are drawn to these businesses. So, um, you know, I clearly bring a body of knowledge uh, as a result of uh, my 29 years uh, in banking that's um, uh, directly connected to uh, wealth management and asset management. Um, but I'll tell you, one of, you know, one of my early observations is, uh, you know, what I... What I love about uh, IGM is that it's it's both got scale and is able to be nimble, and and I think that's actually a really kind of neat intersection, um, and uh, I think that's one of the that's going to prove to be one of the strengths of this business. It's a big business to be sure, uh, but it's not so big that we can't move quickly, and so. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to working with the management team on that as we respond to, you know, macro macro winds that are blowing in this industry. It's going to create opportunities for us, and you should expect, expect us to be nimble and responsive to them. 
That's a great point. Thank you for your time. Our next question is a follow-up from Tom McKinnon of BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks for uh, having the follow-up question. Um, I just wanted to go revisit slide 32 here on IG Wealth Management Key Profitability Drivers. Um, and you may have mentioned this, but, uh, um, you, you know, you're really just looking at, at, in terms of revenue advisory fees coming down and asset-based comp fees going up. Like, how is that supposed to set essentially change um, is and, and how is that I mean that's not necessarily a great trend that we're seeing right there and what's going to drive that change uh, in order to uh, or is this just a, a you know is this just a function of moving AUA to AUM great great question Tom so, so I'll start with asset based comp and I'll, I'll just remind when you look at that um, that increase in uh, in Q1 over Q4 if you go back to our disclosures, uh, our analyst presentation from uh, from Q1, you'll see discussion in there, which is a reminder that we've been uh, we've been over a few years since we discontinued deferred selling commissions. We've been transitioning the comp the composition of our uh, of our compensation uh, for our consultant network, and so what what we've what we've seen, and we've got one more year of it coming, is we've seen that sales based compensation uh, reducing. And that being offset with increased asset-based compensation. So when you look at that that increase from uh, from Q1 to Q4, that that was a step that was offset by uh, commission rates coming down. And and all of that is 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 disclosed in our supplemental info. And so you can think of compensation being being unchanged. It's just the uh, the, the component pieces that uh, that changed. And we do have that happening once again in uh, 2021. And then it'll be more steady state. Um, on the advisory fees. What uh, what you see here is the uh, the composition of the clientele changing, and so we've we've tried to give guidance to the best that we can of of how the advisory fees will evolve as we execute our plan, and it is going to be determined basically a, a function of how successful or unsuccessful we are in our high net worth strategy. The, the more successful we are, you'll see this rate come down uh, to a greater extent because we're bringing high net worth clientele, and of course we've got our AUA increasing rapidly in that scenario and our revenue increasing rapidly. Um, if we're less successful in, in executing our high net worth strategy, you'll see this, this line be more stable. Um, but that's the biggest driver of that line. It is the composition of our clientele. And there is a clear relationship between our, our net flows and our AUA growth and, and this rate. So does that mean the advisory fees are essentially just higher as a percentage of AUA as you move up scale? That seems to be a bit contradictory. No, no, it's the, it's the opposite. So, so we're saying the revenue is higher as we move up scale because because we've, I mean, yeah. we've got the client relationship. But but yeah, the rate goes down. Our, our higher net worth clients pay lower advisory fees. And uh, and if you look at our past disclosures, you'll see um, in Q4 2018 we announced that that we actually set a competitive and differentiated pricing across all all the key client segments. And, and we actually have that, have got what we believe is very competitive pricing for households with over a million dollars. So the more successful we are there, the rate will come down at a greater level. Okay, thanks for that. Our next question is a follow-up from Gary Ho of Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Uh, perfect. Uh, thanks. Just one more question, Barry. Just on the private alts with Northleaf that you're planning, uh, the product that you're planning to launch next month, can you tell us how that's structured, uh, any liquidity or redemption limitations, 
kind of what's been the market intel for a product like that in the uh, retail marketplace. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so we're, um, we'll, we'll be launching, um, again, uh, just to um, lay out the, the game plan, we'll be launching, as I mentioned, private, a private credit fund first off, uh, end of this year. It might, might, might go into January, but December or January. And then um, also we're going to launch next a uh, infrastructure fund and then a private equity fund, both in 2021. So it'll be all set by uh, third or fourth quarter of 2021 with all three uh, mid-market global um, orientation orientated strategies that Northleaf um, uh, manages. There'll be OMs offering memorandum wrappers. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but uh, so that would be the vehicle. Um, and we're we're working on a we think a pretty unique design um, uh, in partnership with Northleaf to ensure that uh, the um, we can balance within that construct within that vehicle. Uh, both obviously direct access to their direct credit vaults in those three asset classes uh, individually by fund, as well as having the proper liquidity embedded. Because as you know, we have uh, a full array now of liquid alternatives that matches up with those three asset classes. So that's how it'll work in, in broad strokes. Um, so you know, when, when, he, when we launch it, we'll, um, we, we'd, we'd love to give everybody um, uh, a little more background on how that will be balanced between the, again, getting taking the advantage of the long-term illiquid or orientation and return opportunities of these, of these private strategies, but ensuring there's proper liquidity embedded uh, in, the, uh, in the vehicle through liquid alts. I would like to say also that we, you know, we're, um, our, our sales team is uh, all educated and ready to go with uh, Northleaf, just terrific partnership. We're so excited to uh, uh, just culture, wonderful cultural alignment. And, um, but we do know that, that what we have done in the past, that we, we, well, there's a certain element of education uh, with the advisors that we certainly want, will take on that responsibility to ensure that not just they understand how these vehicles are constructed to ensure that they have had that combination of, of liquid and illiquid um, investments in the, in the fund, but also how this, could, how this should be structured in their overall portfolio. Because again, as we know, liquidity, and this is probably more on Damon, Damon's side, liquidity can be provided in other parts of your portfolio uh, so that, you know, you can, um, focus more on, again, garnering the return potential of these uh, direct investments with a longer-term orientation. But more to come on that. Um, you know, we don't want to give away all the secret sauce yet, <laughs> but I'm very excited by the first launch, which will be either next month or January. Thank you. Okay. That's perfect. Uh, thanks, Barry. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Potter for any closing remarks. Thank you, Ariel, and uh, thank you to everyone uh, who joined us on the call today. Uh, we hope you have a great Friday and uh, as it moves into the weekend. And uh, with that, I will end the call. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating, and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.